Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. I have noticed uh, the older I get, and I, I suspect you have noticed it as well, that there are some words and there are some phrases that people use all the time and they don't seem like the right, right word to use in that context. Maybe the context is off, maybe the meaning of the word has changed, but it seems like you're not using the right word there. Sort of to, to quote Indigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means. There's words that we use that they don't really mean what we think they mean. For instance, awesome. Have you noticed that everything is awesome? Do you have a definition of awesome? Something that inspires a sense of awe or fear. Therefore, your pizza is probably not awesome. It might be tasty. It might be delicious. But it's probably not really awesome. Another word that is used pretty often is the word that I want to talk about this morning, and that is miracle. It was a miracle. It was miraculous. You know, we throw that word around all the time, and we use it pretty freely without really understanding what a real miracle is. So I'm going to give you some examples of this. I'm a sports guy. I like sports. So I want to share with you some, um, some things that have been called sports miracles over the last few years, most of them when I was a child. Uh, for instance, in 1972, my Pittsburgh Steelers were involved in what was called the Immaculate Reception. Fourth and forever, Terry Bradshaw drops back, evades a, a sack, throws the ball downfield, it caroms off of Jack Tatum and Frenchie Fuqua, Frank O'Hare scoops it up and runs for a touchdown. I have that exact same picture, signed by Franco Harris, hanging in my office. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. We've worked on that all week. Myron Cope called it the miracle at Three Rivers. I don't think it was a miracle. It was a strange bounce. It was exciting, but... I don't think it was a miracle. How about this one? 1973, Kingston, Jamaica. World champion Joe Frazier gets knocked down six times by George Foreman in the first two rounds. Prompted Howard's Cosell, down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Cosell would later call it a miraculous, uh, a miraculous a showing of strength and athleticism. Really? Miraculous? George Foreman was a really strong guy. Now let him just wail away on anybody for five or six minutes, they're probably going to go down. Uh, next. 1988, Game 1, World Series. Score tied, bottom of the ninth. Kirk Gibson limps out of the dugout with two bad legs. On a 3-2 pitch, Dennis Eckerdley sends a ball over the right field line, uh, right field fence. As he rounds second, Joe Buck says, I don't believe what I just saw. It's an iconic line. Really? An excellent baseball player just hit a home run, and you can't believe it. I mean, that's pretty believable. It happens all the time. 1973, 
in what was maybe the greatest horse race by the greatest racehorse, Secretariat demolishes the field in the Belmont by 31 lengths, still the fastest mile and a half ever run on dirt. It was called the Miracle Mile and a Half. But that wasn't a miracle. That was a really fast horse. But it wasn't a miracle. We can't call that a miracle. And then finally, you're probably waiting on this one, 1980, United States hockey team, bunch of college kids defeat the vaunted Russian squad, four to three. And as the clock ticks down on that victory, Al Michaels very famously shouts, do you believe in miracles? Yes! And the United States wins the hockey game. This morning, I'm going to ask you the same question. Do you believe in miracles? And I'm not talking about the funny bounce of a football. I'm not talking about a home run or a horse race or you know, a, a hockey game that goes unexpectedly. I'm talking about the actual definition of a miracle. Do you believe in miracles? And I'm going to tell you up front, the correct answer is yes! We have been talking about Jesus this year. Jesus is a teacher, as a rescuer, Jesus as a healer. I want to spend this morning talking about Jesus as the worker of miracles. And I want to do that by taking a look at the very first miracle ever performed by Jesus. It's in John chapter 2, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to John, the second chapter. It's a miracle that we're very familiar with. A lot of people say it's not nearly as impressive a miracle as some others, which I don't know how you can call any miracle non-impressive. But it's a miracle that we know very well, but I think there's some things that maybe we can still learn from this, uh, from this story that we're so familiar with. Because there are some things that, that we learn about Jesus, and I think there's some things that we can learn about human nature from this story. So we're going to take a look at this miracle this morning and see if we can't learn some things uh, about ourselves. John chapter 2 begins in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus and his friends and his mother are at a, a wedding feast, and there's a problem. What's the problem? The problem is the wine has run out. There's no more wine. Now, we read that and we think, well, what's, you know, that's not that big a deal. Because our weddings are very different than first century Jewish weddings. For us, the ceremony is what's important in a wedding. The ceremony is what we pay such attention to. The music starts on time, the lighting is right, the flowers are right, the dress looks good. All the things in the ceremony are important. First century in the Jewish culture, the ceremony wasn't that big a deal. What was a huge deal was the reception. A reception would last for days, sometimes even as long as a week. And the fact that the wine had run out created a problem. In Jewish culture, wine was much, much more than just something to drink. It was a symbol. In fact, there was a saying in Jewish culture, when there is no wine, there is no joy. It was a symbol of good times. It was a symbol of joy and of happiness. I want to take a, a close look at this well-known miracle. 
Thank you. Um, the story is about Jesus, for sure. Jesus is the focus of this miracle. But I want to attack this thing by looking at some of the people around Jesus, some of the supporting cast uh, it, during this miracle. Because again, I think there's, there's some things we can learn. They do a couple of things that are very, very wrong, the people around Jesus. And they do a couple of things that are, that are very, very right. Maybe we can learn some lessons. First is this. We lose our joy when we focus on details that we think will bring us joy. You know, far too often we focus on our feelings instead of our faith. Verse 3 says, when the wine was gone. All of the attention immediately shifts in the focus of the story to the wine that is missing. When the wine was gone. We tend to focus ourselves so many times on natural problems rather than spiritual solutions. Here you have this wonderful event. This man and a woman are getting married. What a cause for joy. What a cause for celebration. But instead of being so happy about the event itself and what's really going on, suddenly, wait a minute, the wine has run out. You know, I tell people all the time when I'm performing a wedding ceremony, I always tell the, the bride and groom, listen, no matter what happens, no matter who trips, no matter what you say, no matter when the music plays, no matter what a little kid does, I am going to say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I promise, when you leave this place, you're going to be married. Don't get hung up on all the things that might go wrong. And the groom always says, you're right. And the bride always says, you better get it right. They get hung up on all the other little things. How many times do we focus on the things that don't really matter? How many times do we miss opportunities for, for happiness, for growth? Because we're so consumed with something that we perceive as being a little bit out of place. And so often, all we can see is the fact the wine is gone. Forget about everything else that's going on around me. The wine is gone. All those wonderful events. And we say, yeah, but... All the ways that God has blessed me, yeah, but... The Apostle Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. And what Paul is saying is there's a lot more going on around us than we realize. And there is a lot more going on around us than those things that we tend to, to obsess over. Second thing that happens here. Mary, Jesus' mother. Uh, one, 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 two, there you go. Thank you. Um, Mary decides to take matters into her own hands. We lose our joy when we decide to take matters into our own hands. You ever guilty of that? Are you ever guilty of saying, you know, I better do something because it looks like God's not going to show up? Now, I prayed about that this morning, and here it is this afternoon. God hadn't done anything yet, so I'm going to have to come up with my own solution. Ever guilty of doing that? I suspect we are. No, God's not doing what I think He should do when I think He should do it. Verse 3 says, Jesus' mother said to him, which is very ironic because this isn't his mother's wedding. 
She's a guest at the wedding, but she sees a problem, so she decides, I've got to do something. Now, we could argue that she takes the problem to Jesus, but when you read the context of the story, she still very much is acting on her, on her own accord here. She's making the decision to take some kind of action. And, you know, I, I don't want to come down too hard on Mary, because I get it. Because I do the same thing all the time. There's this great passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30, that uh, kind of speaks to this. Isaiah 30, 15. The Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, Only in returning to me and waiting for me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will get our help from Egypt. They will give us swift horses for riding into battle. But the only swiftness you're going to see is the swiftness of your enemies chasing you. One of them will chase a thousand of you. Five of them will make all of you flee. You'll be left like a lonely flagpole on a distant mountaintop. God says, turn to me. Trust in me. Your strength is in me. And we say, let's see what Egypt has to offer. Maybe we can find help somewhere else. Maybe we can come up with our own solution. And God says, your solution won't work. And here's the last mistake that's in this story. The negative is exaggerated. It goes back a little bit to a point I already made, but we lose our joy when we exaggerate the negative. Again, all these wonderful things going on in this story, and the focus shifts from what's missing. Now, sometimes I feel like I'm guilty of spending all my time with God complaining to God. And there's a time and a place for that, and I know that God allows that. And I know that there's a time for lament. And there's a time to pour out our hearts to God. But I don't want to spend all my time with God complaining. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Oh, death and pain and gloom and murder. You know, I don't believe everything's horrible. I don't want all my time spent with God to be in complaints. I want to thank Him. I want to praise Him. I want to recognize Him for all the wonderful things He's put into my life. You know, as the old saying goes, sometimes we have to quit telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. And that's true. There comes a time when we just really and truly have to believe that God is good and that God loves me. There comes a time when I just have to truly believe God knows what He's doing. And He's going to treat me out of love. I think we lose our, our joy when we start exaggerating our problems. Well, those are a couple of mistakes that are made in this miracle, but I said they got a couple of things right, too. So let's see if we can learn some things from what these people did right. Now, let's finish the miracle. Verse 4, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Do you want to experience a miracle? First, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Just do whatever he tells you. 
Mary has talked to Jesus. Now she turns and talks to the servants. And she tells the servants, He's about to tell you to do something. It might not make sense to you, but do it. He's about to tell you to do something. You might not understand it, but do it. He's different. I know. I get it. I raised him. But I'm telling you, when he tells you to do something, do it. Don't try to analyze it. Just do it. Don't try to wrap your mind around it. Just do it. See, you thought Nike came up with that saying. It's in the Bible. That was Mary. Just do it. And of course, Jesus did tell them to do something that didn't make sense. He did tell them to do something that they couldn't wrap their mind around. And when you look through Scripture, that's the way God has always acted. God is always telling people to do things that they don't understand. And He's always challenging us to do things that, that we might not be able to wrap our minds all the way around. And I'll tell you why God acts like that. I know why God treats us that way. And I know why we think that way. The reason's in Isaiah chapter 55. My thoughts are completely different from yours, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God says, I don't think the way you think. And God says, I don't act the way you act. God says, you can't imagine the way I think. You know, people here, Christians, say that. And I always get, that is such a cop-out. That is such a, anything you can't explain, you say, well, we can't understand God. It's not a cop-out. It's an understanding and a realization that I'm not as smart as God is. And I can't understand the things that God understands. God says, I want your heart. You know, so many times we serve God from our head to our heart. And I know I've been guilty of that. As soon as it makes sense, count me in. As soon as I can understand it, I'm on your side. As soon as I have all my questions answered, I'm on board. God said, I want you to serve me from your heart to your head. I want your heart. Even when you can't understand why I'm asking you to do something, even when it doesn't make perfect sense to you. Remember, we walk by faith, not by sight. God's a whole lot bigger than we are. And I'm okay with that. Now, I am not saying don't bother to study, don't try to learn, don't try to grow. You know I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, if you're waiting until you can have every single question answered, if you're waiting until you understand everything there is to know about God before you believe, you're never going to believe. Because when it comes to understanding God and God's ways, we're all four-year-olds. I mean, we can't. We're, we're finite beings and we can't understand and totally and completely appreciate an infinite God. But that doesn't mean I can't trust a totally infinite God. Well, let's continue with the miracle. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some out and 
take it to the master of the banquet. The problem was they'd run out of wine. If they've run out of wine, there's got to be some empty wine bottles somewhere, right? But Jesus doesn't tell them to fill up the empty wine bottles that are sitting around somewhere. Jesus tells them to fill up these six big containers, these ceremonial jars that are big. And they knew what they were, and they knew what they were used for. And they knew they held a lot of water. Jesus said, fill those up with water. 180 gallons or thereabouts. Here's the second thing when it comes to miracles. We need to believe the unbelievable. In other words, we need to trust God for the really big things. You know, we all have expectations of God, of what He can do and what He will do and what He might do. And usually by the time it gets down to a personal level, our expectations are pretty low. We set the bar fairly low when we think about what God might do in my life. Now, we believe Scripture when it says God can do anything. And we believe all those stories about when God did mighty things. But we have a problem believing that He'll act in a mighty way in my life. In fact, we use that kind of verbiage all the time. It'll never happen. Can't be done. When hell freezes over, she'll never change. He'll never be different. The situation will never get any better. If you want a miracle in your life, you're going to have to believe the unbelievable. You're going to have to believe that Jesus can take 180 gallons of water and turn it into wine. And you're going to have to believe that Jesus can take a hard, calloused heart and soften it. And you're going to have to believe that Jesus can intervene in any situation, no matter how hopeless, no matter how helpless it might seem, and do something amazing. You need to believe the unbelievable. Let's finish the story. They did so. Verse 9, And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Servants take this previously water, now wine, to the master of the ceremony, the, the banquet. He tastes it and said, wow, this is good stuff. I like this. This is great. Here's one last thing you need to do when we talk about miracles. You need to expect the very best. When you're, expecting, when you're thinking about a miracle from the Lord, you should expect the very best. When God grants a miracle, it's always more than we expect. It's always more than we deserve. You're going to like it. You're going to like it a lot. See, I want to be a part of a church that, that trusts God for the very best things. I want to be part of a, a community that expects God. I mean, expects God to do something awesome. And I use that word when I talk about God because He does inspire awe. 
and fear. I don't want to be limited by what I can do. I don't want to have to settle for what you can do. I want to, I want to see things, experience things where my only reaction is to hit my knees, shake my head and say, that was God. That wasn't me, that wasn't us. That was God. This morning, maybe you're here and, and you don't have any joy in your heart. Maybe for you the wine is gone. The wine has run out. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, a heartache over some disease or, or some health issue. Maybe it's a job situation or the lack of a job. Maybe there's just no joy in your heart right now. And by the way, I don't dismiss that. Because I know that life is really hard. But I also know that Scripture says that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. And I think one of the works of the Spirit of God is joy. I think one of the miraculous works is joy. Right in the middle of hard and I see it all the time. I see people going through things and they still have this joy about them. Not for the situation, but there's just a godly joy. How do you do that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no other answer. Or, or maybe today your life's going great. I'm happy. Things are good. But God's not really a part of your life. You need to put your faith in God. Again, it wouldn't be faith if we had all the answers. If our limited minds could figure it all out, it wouldn't be faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. A couple quick questions as we close. John chapter 2, wedding feast. Mary approaches Jesus. The wine is gone. Did Mary know how Jesus was going to take care of that problem? I don't think so. I don't think Mary understood how Jesus was going to take care of that problem. I don't think she knew he was going to have him fill up those uh, six water jars with all that water and turn that water into wine. I think, I think that's, that, that, I don't think she saw that coming. But the real question I want to ask is, was Mary surprised that Jesus took care of the problem? Because I don't think she was surprised. She didn't know how he was going to do it, she didn't know exactly what Jesus was going to do, but Mary knew Jesus was going to do something. She told the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. might not make sense, but go ahead and do it. Mary wasn't surprised at Jesus' power because she knew Jesus. Better than anyone there, she knew this is not an ordinary man. I don't know what he's going to do, but something's about to happen because he's about to get involved. This morning, I'm going to tell you something that I truly believe with all my heart. When I think about my life, when I think about my family, when I think about my church, I don't know what Jesus is going to do. But I am convinced with all my heart He's going to do something. He's going to do something in my life. He's going to do something with my family. He's going to do something with the Bay Area family. I don't know what that's going to look like. And I'm not even sure I could dream big enough to imagine what it might look like. I don't know what he's going to do. 
but I believe that Jesus is going to do something with me and with us. So I want to do whatever it is He tells me to do. I want to be obedient to things that, that no one else is telling me, that the world is not telling me, that sometimes common sense doesn't even tell me. I want to do what He tells me to do. I want to put my faith in Him. I want to expect the very best on His time, not on my time. Expect Him to come through in a way that, that, that will blow me away. And it will be better than anything I could have ever imagined for myself. This morning, are you living your life like the wine has run out? Are you living your life like the joy is gone? The joy is not gone. That 1980 hockey game, Al Michaels, you know, the seconds tick down. Do you believe in miracles? Then he shouts, yes, as the clock hits zero. Kind of indicating, you've just seen one. Well, that wasn't a miracle. But I believe in miracles. I have seen miracles. I have seen God intervene in my life and in situations where it's God. There is no other explanation than God. This morning, do you believe in miracles? And if the answer is yes, then you have got to believe in the man who makes miracles. The one who does miracles. You've got to believe in the miracle maker as well. This morning, if as a family we can do anything with you, for you, pray with you about any situation, maybe you just got some good news you want to share with your church family, we'd love to do that as well. There's going to be some people here at the front of the auditorium if you'd meet us there. Let's stand and sing.